Good morning. Like Daniel said, my name is Joshua. I'm really excited to be sharing with you guys this morning. We're going to be talking about, I'm, and I'm not exaggerating here, my favorite passage of scripture. So not to hype it up too much, but it's going to be awesome. I'm really excited about it. But first, before we get to that, I want to tell you guys a story, uh, a story about my 11-year-old birthday party. It was a monumentous day in my life, but honestly, I don't really remember the birthday party itself. I don't remember who was there or what I got or what we did. I'm sure it was fun. Uh, like, I mean, I feel like if it had been bad, I would have remembered that, right? But I, what I do remember about my 11th birthday party was not the party, but it was the night before. Because most kids lay in bed, and it's so exciting, right? Like, you're thinking about what you're going to get, what are your friends going to do? You know, it's, it's one of the most exciting and hardest nights to sleep of your entire life. It's like Christmas, and so there I was, you know, a soon-to-be 11-year-old, a 10-year-old technically still. But I'm laying there going, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. And suddenly a thought entered my mind. What if no one shows up? What if, what if all of my friends that said they were going to come didn't come? And what if, what if the presents are lame? And what if no one has fun? And suddenly, all of a sudden, all of these thoughts started to just whirl through my head so quickly. And I'm laying there in bed in the dark, just like not able to sleep. And I'm just getting more and more worked up. And the more I think about it, the worse it gets. And like the world is going to end tomorrow because my birthday party is going to be a total failure. And to my little 10-year-old brain, the world was ending and my life was over. So I did what any normal, soon-to-be 11-year-old would do. I yelled, Mom! I need you, please, help! And so sure enough, uh, my mom, who I'm sure would have much been, much preferred sleeping at that moment, hobbles in, I'm sure, half asleep. And uh, I'm sure she did a great job comforting me. I really don't, I don't remember what she said to me, but she was there for me. And we calmed down. I ate some crackers, because that just makes everything better. And I eventually calmed down. I came, I came from up here to down there, and I eventually fell back to sleep. And I woke up the next day and had a great birthday party. And that's the story of my very first panic attack, guys. I need like a little plaque, like something to commemorate that day, you know? <laughs> and, and these things started when I was 10 and became a pretty normal part of my life, uh, even now. Before, I was like, I'm a little nervous before getting up, and like, I can feel it inside of me, and I'm like, okay, got to bring it from up here to down here. And you see, panic attacks have been part of my life, something that I've needed to learn to deal with, but there was a second unintended side effect of this new part of my life. You see, my emotions got out of control for me. In those moments, my anxiety kept running and going so hard that I soon began to identify emotions as a negative thing, that emotions were something that were meant to be suppressed, and that logic, logic was supreme. And you, have, you end up with this dichotomy of logic versus emotions, right? And for almost a decade of my life, one of my like, primary goals in life was to completely suppress the emotional and only be a logical person. Now, if you've spent any time around me, you know that I am an incredibly emotional person. Like, I just, I just, emotions dictate so much of my life. And you see, I started to realize this about myself as I grew up. As I kind of got to the end of college, I started to identify in myself, oh no, emotions are part of me. 
And it was scary to me. And I started to like think through this. And I had always dealt with uh, scripture and my faith so long. I had, you know, I had everything figured out. I had all the logic of everything systematized. And suddenly emotions started to get in the way. And I started to realize that maybe, maybe just maybe, emotions aren't the bad guys. Sure, they can get us into trouble sometimes, but so can logic. And so I started to look at scripture with new eyes. That maybe if God gave this to me, he gave it to me for a reason. These emotions that maybe though some of you may be like me and try to lie and say, oh, I don't have any emotions. But deep down, we know, we know we all have emotions. And so I started to look at scripture and I started to recognize that not only did scripture not condemn emotions, it actually kind of like promoted them. And it said good things about them and it encouraged people to be emotional which was weird to me. And I'm not talking about emotional in this sort. Like, I don't cry at the end of every rom-com, but I do really love rom-coms. You know, it's that sort of thing. So, like, I'm not talking about emotions and strictly, you know, I cry about everything, but just I'm a, a lot of my decisions are emotionally dictated. And I started to recognize that there were some super godly people in scripture that were really, really emotional. One of those people was David. Now, Daniel talked about David a couple months ago and told us all about uh, David and Goliath. And around that time, David was quite young. And David was told, God has kind of destined you to become king of Israel. What a calling, right? And that's pretty awesome. You could imagine, like, you kind of, like, you walk into the, the castle and you're like, guys, I've arrived. I'm the king. Unfortunately, the current king of Israel wasn't too happy about it, as that makes sense, right? If I was king, I wouldn't want some guy running around going, well, I'm going to be the next king of Israel. And so uh, the current king hunted David. He hunted him down. There was practically a civil war that waged, and David's life was really terrible. From the time that he was told that he was going to be king, there was over a decade of David living on the run. At one point, he literally lived in a cave. Now, I've had some bad apartments, especially during college, but I have never lived in a cave. Like, that's, that's as low as it gets. Like, I could imagine being in a cave and going, well, at least it can't get any worse, right? <laughs> you know? And you see more and more of David's emotions later on in his stories. At one point, he sees a girl, and I'm sure this was not logic speaking. He was like, hey, go get that gal for me. He got her pregnant and then tried to kill her husband. He was like an an intensely emotional guy, and yet he was the guy that God chose. And that's kind of weird to me, because in my my mindset of logic versus emotions, he shouldn't, like there must have been a more logical guy than David. And I discovered this passage, Psalm 18, it's so good. Oh, it's the best. And see, what's happened is there's been over a decade of David living on the run. Things are tough, things are hard, and finally... God has come through for David, and he is now the king of Israel. He's united all of Israel. And, you know, things are good for him for the first time in a really, really long time. And he cries out and prays to God and prays a prayer. It's originally in 2 Samuel, and then he rewrote it in Psalm 18 so that we as the church could take this and claim it as our own and put ourselves into this place and be able to pray it and praise it as something that we can say to God. 
And so we're just going to dive in. And so this is where David has been. He's been in a hard place, and this is his celebration of what happened. So we're going to start in Psalm 18, right at the start in verse 1. He starts off so strong. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be saved and I am, or worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Whoa, what a strong intro, right? Think back to high school or college when we had to write essays. This is the, the, like the granddaddy of thesis statements. This, like, he lays it all out, like, quickly, too. I, I think that's all one, oh, it's two, two, uh, two sentences. But that's a lot. He's just introduced the themes, the characters. He's introduced everything that he's going to talk about for the rest of Psalm 18. He introduces the two main characters, God, and he kind of describes God to you, who he sees God as. God is a rock, a fortress, a deliverer. God is a warm fire in the middle of a blizzard. He is a storm shelter in the middle of a tornado. God is a safe place to David, and he's already set that up. Then you see the second character. It's just described here as I, it's David. I think that we can safely put ourselves into this place, and we will as we continue interchangeably say us and David. Um, I'll just switch back and forth, so keep up. I'm sure you can do it. Uh, And David is introduced as calling upon the Lord. And he's just, he's just crying out. And this is how David and us are in, in initially introduced in this passage, in the introduction, in the thesis. And so this raises a, nat- a natural question, right? Why, why does David need saving? Of course, we know a little bit about his past, but David wasn't content with us just knowing his background and going, well, yeah, he was living in a cave. Of course he needed to be saved. But he describes it for us, and he does it so poetically. He uses such strong imagery. David was also a poet and a a singer, and he played the harp. He was just just an all-around emotional dude. And so he describes this in the most poetic way where what he needs saving from. So he continues on in verse 4 and says, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of the depths entangled me. And the snares of death confronted me. Now, I don't think it was the case that David necessarily, like, was trapped in some briars when he needed saving. I don't think that was the case. I think he's speaking uh, in allegory, in metaphor here. And he's, and he's speaking about these terrible places that he's been at. And I was looking at this, and I was, I was pondering these metaphors. And torrents of destruction really stuck out for me because I have a confession. I'm not a great swimmer. I'm just not. Like, I'm capable of swimming, but, like, it's just, like, prolonged drowning. <laughs> Like, somebody would look at me swimming and be like, he's close to death. We need to save him. I like being in the pool, but only if I can touch. You know, I am that type of person. I'm just, my head's too big. I sink. It's just, it's a mess. And so the idea of a torrent of destruction, if you don't know, a torrent is just uh, fast-flowing water. Uh, A torrent of destruction is horrifying to me. And so this uh, past summer... I did the smartest thing that somebody who doesn't like swimming should do. I tried surfing on the bow. Uh, (laughs) If you've driven into Calgary, taken the sea train into Calgary, there is this place in the Bow River that it kicks up a wave, and there are all these guys all summer that surf it. So I saw that, thought, 
man, that would be so cool. You know how cool I would look? I could post on Instagram. People would see me. It would be awesome. And so flash forward, I have rented a wetsuit. I have um, gotten instructions from some hippie. And I am standing on a rock in the Bow River. I'm wearing a wetsuit, and the water is like up to here. And I'm just holding a surfboard in front of me, thinking, what have I done? And what looks like a very tiny wave from the top of the bridge is like, it's huge. It's like 30 feet wide, and it's so fast. And I'm, I'm standing there, you know, holding my surfboard, and I like look around, and the, the hippie's like, just jump, just go for it. And what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to jump in, land on the board, stand up, take some Instagram pics, you're good. <laughs> what happened was I jumped in, the board caught the wave, but like I couldn't hold on. So it just, it was gone. And then I hit the wave and next thing I know, I'm underwater, my eyes are closed because I'm not a fish. I can't hear a thing. And I'm spinning through the water. I don't know which way is up. I don't know which way I need to swim to save myself. Like I am so disoriented in this moment. This was the closest I think I've ever been to going, this is it. It's all over. Tell my mom I loved her. Uh, give my motorcycle to somebody who will love her. You know, it's, it's all the things that rush through your head as you're about to just give in forever. Now, luckily, I was being a little overdramatic, and the wave was only like 15 feet long, so I popped up on the other side of the wave and lived to tell this story but in that moment, that's what the torrent of destruction was for me. Not only was I in trouble, but I didn't even know which direction to swim to save myself. Right? Like, not only was I hopeless or in trouble, but there was, there was nothing to save me. The only reason I lived was because the torrent led up. Right? And in our lives, we can look at the things that are going on, and sometimes it feels like things are bad, but then beyond that, it's not even like I have a game plan. I look, and I'm like looking at my finances, and it's, oh, I just don't have enough money, and I hate my job. That's, of course, not the case for me in real life, but, <laughs> but we look at that, or, or we've listened to Daniel talk and give all this great family advice the past few weeks, and you're kind of going, but Daniel, have you met my family? They're unhelpable. I've tried everything you've said, and it just, it feels hopeless. Or you have a relationship, and it's like, I'm trying to make it work. I want to make it work, but they just can't change. And I'm just in this place, and I just don't know what to do. And not only are things are bad, but I don't even know the right direction to swim. And you feel blinded, and you're in this terrible spot, and that's where David starts us off at. And so what does David do in response? What does David invite us to do? David continues on in the next verse and says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry to him reached his ears. Maybe you've never considered this before, but when we cry out to God, he hears us. I love, to, I love to picture, have you ever seen like a father that's like sitting at a, like the dinner table or something and his kid runs up and like he whispers right in his ear. Like that's the image that's, that's being like shown here. My cry to him reached his ears. You know, like no matter how bad it gets, no matter how down in the depths, in the pits, no matter how much uh, David thought he was going to drown, God was there to hear his cries. 
You know, God, we think about him a lot of times and we, we like to pretend that he probably like did a lot of good things and, you know, maybe he sent Jesus, but like we're just here on our own trying to figure it out. And, you know, maybe there's some advice in the Bible, but, you know, who knows? But this is an entirely different picture because this is, this is a God that we can cry out to that's there to hear us, that's ready. A lot like my mom, who on the night of my 11th birthday party, it didn't matter that she would rather have been sleeping. My cry to her reached her ears and she came to me and said, what's wrong? How, like, what do you need? And she was there for me and my cry reached her ears. And so what does God do about this? And I'm going to be honest, this next passage is a little overwhelming. It's over the top. There's some crazy imagery here. And I think that um, David is kind of inviting us to be emotional about this. To kind of picture this into our heads, to get excited, to get hyped up about what God does in response. And so I encourage you to do that with me. It says that then... The earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. And this isn't the type of anger that I get on Deerfoot. This is the type of anger of a father whose child is being bullied. He steps in and he's willing to move the whole world just to save his kid. And so it continues, smoke went up from his nostrils, a devouring fire from his mouth. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. It keeps going. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water out of the brightness before him. Hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. And it keeps going. It doesn't stop there. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the most high uttered his voice hailstones and coals of fire he sent out his arrows and scattered them he flashed forth lightnings and routed them in the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke O lord at the blast of the breath of your nostrils Woo! that's crazy right that's insane. That's an amazing picture that God wasn't content to just stay in heaven, but he, he bowed heaven down. Like, like I like to imagine like clouds literally like, oh, like there's this crazy moment. And then like he comes out and there's like horses and like light. Like it's just the craziest image, right? And then it doesn't matter what is in his way. It doesn't matter what has ailed us or David. God is there to push those things aside. He'll lay the foundation of the world aside to save David, to be there for him. One of my favorite philosophical films is an excellent film called Talladega Nights. Uh, it's the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Uh, if you don't know, Ricky Bobby is played by Will Ferrell. Um, it's an excellent movie about NASCAR. highly recommend it. It's very good. But there's this excellent scene where he's sitting with his family around a dinner table. And uh, Ricky does not want to say, dear God, because it's intimidating to him to imagine God when he prays. So he says, dear, seven pounds, six ounce, laying in a manger, baby Jesus. And then he says his prayer. Because he prefers to picture that God when he prays. Now, Sure, sure, like maybe Ricky has some point that could be intimidating, but honestly, guys, that's the picture I want in my head when I pray. That's the God that I want to pray to. I don't want, and sure, the God that is talking about this is the same God that was in the manger, but I like to imagine that this is my God. When I cry out to him, this is what God is doing. 
God is not standing complacently by. God is not saying, well, Joshua, you sinned four times, four times in the last hour. You know, he's not doing that. He is there and he is immediate and he is willing to, to lay aside everything for you and me and David and us. And, and he's willing to do that with all the power and emotion. And this is so poetic. And so after this amazing description of what happens, scripture continues and says that God sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated, for they were too mighty for me. In the same way that I couldn't escape the torrent, that we feel like life is hopeless sometimes, that there are no solutions, our enemies are too mighty for us. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Maybe you've never considered before that God delights in you. That God isn't content to just stand by and say, oh yeah, there's that person, they're really screwing up their life. That's what he does when he looks at me. But instead, he's there going, I delight in you. He takes us out of that place of calamity, out of the torrents of destruction, and he places us in a broad place. Imagine a pasture. Mine has flowers and orchids because they're the best flowers. And then there's like some sheep and they don't smell. And like, it's the perfect, it's, it's like he's taken us from the perfect spot, uh, from the hard spot and put us in the perfect spot. And now maybe you're like me and you're skeptical. And I've been at places in my life where things have been really hard and I felt hopeless and I've heard Preachers get up and say, oh, you know, you can just find faith or find trust in God. And I've gone, yeah, 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 but I've tried this, but I don't feel like it. I don't feel like anything is better. I don't feel like I'm in, a, in, this, like, in this broad place, in this pasture. I still feel like I'm stuck in the torrent of destruction. This is an amazing moment where we can go back and we can look at David's story. We can look at that specifically because I imagine if there was any point that David probably cried out, it's probably when he was living in a cave. This really bothers me, guys. I can't imagine living in a cave. Uh, and this, if this was the moment where he cried out, there was probably over a decade where he was waiting to come to this broad place. And now, he, now that he's in this good place, he looks back at everything that has been so tough for the last decade of his life, and he's going, you know what? God was there. And as much as it didn't feel like God was with me at certain points in my life, I look back now and I see how he was molding me and shaping me and preparing me for what was to come. And sometimes crying out for God means that we have to stand around and we have to be okay with what God's plan is. And that's really hard for me. I, I just, I don't like conforming to other people's plans. I'd rather just make it up on my own and figure it out. But this is an amazing picture because God isn't content with leaving us in this hard place, but he takes us up and out of that and puts us in this broad place. So this is intensely emotional, poetic. And emotions are good, but they always should be paired with logic. They should go together. And so right now, we have to make a move and connect the poetic to the practical. You know, because it's one thing to go, wow, that's a really cool story, Joshua. I'm really glad that God can do that. Like, awesome. 
Good job. But we wouldn't really leave changed, right? We need to connect the poetic to the practical. And so I was thinking about how to wrap this up, about where we fall into this. How, how can we connect to this practically? And I think that it can be wrapped up by saying that we need to embrace the rescue and respond with praise. And now this is an important that they go together like this because a lot of us get this flipped around. We try to respond to our problems by rescuing ourselves. And then when we've managed to hobble something together, we go, look at what I have accomplished. Daniel, praise me. You know? And we try to embrace the praise because we've managed to kind of piece something together that will probably work for like a couple weeks. And instead, we have to embrace the rescue that's offered to us, and then we respond with praise. This week, uh, Daniel and Amber had the unfortunate uh, misfortune uh, to uh, break down. Uh, They were driving to Montana. We have a P.O. box there, and they were picking up some stuff. But their car had a rock go through the radiator just south of Okotoks, which is like 60 kilometers away. That's a really far away. And their car was done for. They couldn't drive it. Now, in that moment, Daniel could have made an attempt to push their car back. He could have tried to rescue them. He could have said, babe, get in the driver's seat. You steer. I'm going to push this car. And as in shape and manly as of a dude as Daniel is, he probably would have died on the way. (laughs) No offense. But you just, you, you were screwed. Like, there was no way you could have rescued yourself in that moment. (laughs) it's not your fault. The rock just happened to go through the radiator. Instead, Daniel did the smart thing, the wise thing. He cried out, I need help! And he called a tow truck. And the tow truck came and rescued Daniel and Amber. And I'm sure they praised them and probably paid them. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) And... By doing that, they were rescued, but not because they tried to rescue themselves, because they admitted that they couldn't do it themselves and cried out for rescue. We then need to respond with praise, and that's why we really like to sing here at Connect. That's why when we pray, it's not just a laundry list of things that, God, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, but there's an opportunity for us to praise what God is doing, and to say thank you for this. Wow, I am blown away. Psalms can help us with that. Psalms are great to read out and say, God, here's this thing I found in Psalms. I want to I praise you with these words. It also, um, respond with praise. Uh, I lost my train of thought. It's gone now. Uh, respond with praise. And we, that's why we tell others about Christ. It's not just an opportunity to, like, get more people in the seats. It's not some uh, terrible, like, timeshare offer where you have to sit through a two-hour meeting to get a $5 gift card. You know? This is, this is something that our lives have been changed, and now we want to praise God and tell everyone else about it because guess what? I've been rescued. I was in a place where I was totally helpless, hopeless, and now I'm in a place that's this broad place, and I have a God that knows me personally. And now in this journey to continue on, to make this more practical, 
I realized I said all those words, so this is the logical slide to be on. But we need to make this more practical. And David offers two ways in his actions that he practically did this. One, he cried out for rescue. He says it three or four times. I cried out to God and God heard my cry. You see, I'm going to be honest with you guys. If you guys don't cry out to God, he still might show up. There are plenty of examples in the Bible of people who are unconcerned with what God was doing and God still showed up and rescued them and changed their life. I have examples in my life where that has been the case. But I can say with 100% certainty, an absolute guarantee that if and when you cry out, that God will hear you. And now I'm not... I, I don't enjoy gambling with my life. Maybe my early story about surfing says differently. But if I can choose between a maybe and a guarantee, I'm going to take the guarantee every single time. You see, a lot of times when things are tough, we tend to sit around and go, wow, things are really tough right now. I really hope things get better. But instead, when we cry out, we're guaranteeing rescue. Daniel did not sit at the side of the road and go, man, I really hope a tow truck happens to drive by. It, it could have, and it probably would have pulled over, tried to make some, a couple bucks. But instead, Daniel cried out. He called for rescue because he knew that if he cried out that there was a 100% guarantee that a tow truck would come and rescue him. And we have the same way in our lives. We have the opportunity to guarantee rescue. The second thing is that David knew exactly who he was praying to. David could praise God personally. You see that in the way that he addresses it. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. God, uh, David knew exactly who God was, exactly about his character, exactly the type of person that he was. David knew that when he cried out that God would be there. And so God knows each of us personally and we have an opportunity to cry out to God personally. The Bible is not just some big book of rules or even a book of like fun fables or stories, but see, it's, it's a way to know God personally. It says later uh, in this passage, we, it's a really long chapter, so we only read like the first half. It says later on that, you know, I knew your statutes and I followed them. He knew intimately who God was. He knew him personally. And so today, as we make an attempt to embrace the rescue and respond to praise, there are two extents to which this is true in our lives. The first is the one that we've kind of talked about throughout where we're in a tough spot, a tough situation, and we're looking around at our life and we're going, God, this is ridiculous. I can't believe this. I don't have any, I don't have any hope. I don't know how to get out of this. And we can cry out for rescue and God saves us from those specific moments. That's gonna look different for every one of us in here. And if you're not there right now, I can promise you're gonna be there at some point. I'm sorry to spoil it for you. Things are gonna get tough at some point. And there's that extent to which there's true, but there's also a second extent that we haven't mentioned. You see, maybe you're sitting here for the first time going, wow, I've never considered that there's a God that delights in me, a God that hears me, like a child whispering in their father's ear that's there to ready to like push the whole world aside just for me. 
and you've never considered that and you're going, I want that. But it feels hopeless because God is so big and so perfect and so far away and that's intimidating. Well, I'm here to say that unfortunately, it's kind of hopeless if you try to rescue yourself to God. But instead, God has literally bowed the heavens and came down as his son, Jesus Christ, and literally came and moved the world aside so that he could come and rescue you and rescue you into a relationship with him. And that's true for each and every one of us. There's not a single person in here that is in too hard of a place, in too bad of a torrent, that God can't come and pull you up out of that place. Thank you.